I'm jazz artist Brettina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? Is it everything we have? Welcome to the Alvin Galloway Show. A number of economists, demographers, and other experts are sounding the alarm. The country needs immigrants. From meat packing to home building to STEM professionals to nurses. To keep pace with the job creating post-pandemic economy and long-term economic growth. While public discussion focuses on the estimated 2 million border crossings for the fiscal year, which is not the same as 2 million people, the economists are focusing on the fact that about 10 to 15 percent of job openings that typically employ immigrant or foreign-born workers are still vacant. And yet, the legal immigration system is in dire straits. There is a monstrous backlog of green cards. Generations of people are waiting for legalization. The asylum system is virtually paralyzed. And there's absolutely no appetite in Congress, mostly on the side to ease restrictions for even the most popular of legal immigrants. Dreamers and STEM PhDs come to mind. Through a press briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services, speakers will explain what's at stake and why the policy stalemates on immigration can damage the economic recovery and long-term economic health of the USA. Presenters include Giovanni Pari, Ph.D. Professor of Economics at the University of California, Davis, Research Associate of National Bureau of Economics Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Founder and Director of UC Davis Global Migration Center. Judy Collins, CCP LP MS Program Director, Department of Cardiopulmonary Sciences, College of Health Sciences and Gregory Z. Chen, Esquire, Senior Director of Government Relations, American Immigration Lawyers Association. Moderating this briefing is Associate Editor of Ethnic Media Services, Pilar Romero. Trying to get a lap dance from Lady Freedom But now Lady Liberty is 
acting like Hillary Banks with a prenup. Banks with a prenup. Man, I was brave, sailing on graves. Don't think I didn't notice those tombstones disguised as waves. I'm no dummy. Here's something funny. You could be an immigrant without risking your lives or crossing these borders with thrifty supplies. All you gotta do is see the world with new eyes. Immigrants, we get the job done. Look how far I come. the job done. It's a hard line when you're an import. Baby boy, it's hard times when you ain't sent for it. Racist feet the belly of the beast with they pitchforks. Rich chores done by the people that get ignored. Uh, ya se armó, ya se despertaron. It's a whole awakening. La alarma ya sonó hace rato. Los que quieren buscan, pero nos apodan como vagos. We're the same ones hustling on every level. Ten los datos. Walk a mile in our shoes. Abrochense los zapatos. I've been scoping y'all dudes. Y'all ain't been working like I do while y'all work ya. It hurts ya. You claim I'm stealing jobs. Oh, Peter Piper claimed he picked them. He just under paid pablo but there ain't a paper trail when you living in the shadows we america's ghost riders the credits only borrowed it's a matter of time before the checks all come but immigrants we get the job done look how far i come look how far i come look how far i come we get the job done look how far i come look how far i come look how far i come immigrants we get the job yeah. Immigrants, we get the job done. AOA, immigrants, we don't like that. Nah, they don't play. British Empire strikes back. They're beating us like 808s and hi-hats. Our wrong game of invasion. This ain't Iraq. Who these Fugees? What do they do for me but contribute? New dreams, taxes, and tool swagger and food to eat. Cool, they flee war zones, but the problem ain't ours. Even if our bombs landed on them like the Mayflower. Buckingham Palace, a Capitol Hill. Blood of my ancestors had that all built. With an ink you print on your dollar bill, oil you spill. Thin red line on the flag you hoist when you kill. But still, we just say, look how far I come. Hindustan, Pakistan, to London. To a galaxy far from their ignorance. Cause immigrants, we get the job done. Por tierra, por agua, identidad falsa. Brincamos muros o flotamos en balsa. La peleamos como Sandino en Nicaragua. Somos como las plantas que crecen sin agua. Sin pasaporte americano, porque la mitad de Gringolandia es terreno mexicano Hay que ser bien hijo de puta Nosotros les sembramos el árbol Y ellos se comen la fruta Somos los que cruzaron Aquí vinimos a buscar el oro que nos robaron Tenemos más trucos que la policía secreta Metimos la casa completa en una maleta Con un pico, una pala y un rastrillo Te construimos un castillo Como es que dice el coro, cabrón Immigrants, we get the job done Look how far I come Immigrants, 
we get the job done. Canaan, Snow the Product, Riz Ahmed, Residente. This is the Alvin Galloway Show. And without further ado, let me introduce our first speaker, Giovanni Perry, who will share of his research and data on this issue. Dr. Perry, please go ahead. Thank you, Pilar, for having me here. Uh, thank you, uh, all of you, for being here. Uh, so I will start with uh, some introductory remarks in which I want to, to touch three points. First, I want to give you an idea of the numbers of this immigration decline or halt that has happened in the last two and a half years. Then I want to connect this uh, uh, decline in immigration to uh, price increase and consequences for the economy. And then I want to say something about what does this mean for the medium to long run and what can we do about it? So the numbers first. So I would say that uh, uh, an easy way to describe what's going on in immigration is that since middle 2019, until the end of 2021, there has been essentially zero net immigration in the US. There has been no entrance in the US in aggregate if you over this uh, almost two year period. These are, uh, this is using the data uh, that are most uh, reliable from the US Bureau of Census, uh, the current population survey that every month give us a measure of all the immigrant documented and not present on the US. In late 2021 and early 2022, this number started growing again. But let me give you an idea of what this means in terms of how many immigrants we missed, quote unquote. So if you think of how many immigrants were coming into the US up to mid 2019, so from 2010 on, and if we had continued on that trajectory of uh, inflow of immigrants, uh, as of July, 2022, we would have had 1.7 million more immigrants. So close to two more, 1.7 million more we would have had if we had not had this uh, halt and decline. And the halt, let me describe it. Already in 2019, some of the visa restriction intensification, some of the slowness of the processing of the visa had started reducing the number of entry. But then when COVID hit, essentially this brought to zero uh, the number of entry. And so for those 2019, 2020, and part of 21, there was a very uh, uh, slow growth, only picking up in the late 2021 and 2022. So we're missing 1.7 million. This is 1.1% of the US labor force. And this number comes from IE research, but if you look at the official projection of the census, they match up. The census before 2020 predicted to have in 2022 about 1.6 million more migrants than actually there are. So this uh, uh, both converge to say that there is this big uh, gap. Let me describe who are the immigrants that we're missing a little bit. So first of all, of this 1.7 million, 900,000 would have been college-educated immigrants who work in large part in what we call the STEM sectors. They would have been doctor, computer scientist, biomedical engineers, bio uh, um, expert. And then 800,000 instead would have been non-college-educated concentrated in a few sectors, in particular food, hospitality, restaurant, 
personal services like elderly care, child care, uh, disabled care. Uh, and these sectors, if you look, and I will talk more in uh, the next few minutes, these sectors have are among those which have the highest um, incidence of shortages or most number of job openings unfilled. Uh, food, hospitality have about 14% of uh, uh, openings relative to their employment, of job unfilled relative to their employment. So these are big numbers. And let, let me ask uh, the last number. We also missed uh, in 2020, 2021, and 2022, about 400,000 college students per year, foreign college students, which will translate, according to other estimates, in the next three, four years, in uh, another 100, 150,000 fewer workers per year uh, of college graduate. Okay, so those are the numbers. Now let me talk about how to connect this to price growth. So this decline in immigration or halt in immigration happens at a time in which there is an incredible shortage of workers. Immigration is one of the causes. There are fewer of these people and shortages are in some of them. It's not the only cause. Let me quote other two reasons why there are important shortages after COVID. Uh, one is the fact that a lot of people in their 50s and 60s retired with COVID, early retirement. And these people are unlikely to come back. They retire because, you know, COVID may job complicated, may it cumbersome, and so they decide that. Second, there has been a group of especially U.S. citizens that have decided to change a job, given that their opportunity of working from home increased in some sector, which were relatively uh, work intensive, maybe a little dangerous because they were exposed. A lot of people decided to stay at home, requalify themselves and look for more online jobs. This, so retirement, re-resignation re and change in job plus immigration uh, decline has generated this increase, a very large increase in the number of uh, vacancies. Uh, just to give you a number, in July 2022, there were 10 million unfilled jobs in the US. There are always unfilled jobs, but this number in 2019, so before COVID, in the similar period was 6 million. So there are four extra million jobs unfilled that cannot find a person. And if you think about it, that 1.7 million of immigrants that were missing clearly would have gone almost halfway in uh, filling this. Now, let me say why this matter for the prices. Obviously, if companies have a very hard time uh, in hiring people, they will need to push up wages to attract them. Uh, if a restaurant needs a more worker and they cannot find them, they will have to pay more. And some of this cost of labor will be translated in higher prices of restaurant. Also, these uh, shortages will imply that the restaurant can serve fewer customers. So the supply of these uh, services is not as high. And uh, with demand going up, the price of uh, restaurant services, the price of healthcare services, the price of assistance of the elderly goes up. So price effect because the costs go up. But let me say another important implication of these shortages. If you have a bottleneck in some jobs, it may very well be that as a consequence, you companies and employer don't grow as much, and they also generate reduction in job opportunity elsewhere. Think, for instance, of a hospital or an elderly care facility that cannot admit more customers, admit more elderly people because they don't have the assistance that, uh, because there are fewer immigrants, some retired. Then they cannot expand their facility and they will also need fewer 
clerk, accountant, web manager of the facility, they will need much more, much fewer workers. So given that jobs are different but connected, bottlenecks in some areas, some of which were filled by immigrants, generate less demand for job in other because company don't grow as much. Company cannot afford this. So uh, higher prices, slower growth, and reduction in opportunity for other jobs. What can we do? And what is the perspective? Well, we could do a couple of things. So one, as Pilara says at the beginning, we should put a lot of resources in at least processing the visa, the green card, uh, and all the backlog that has been created. So some of this uh, visa program and green, uh, and green card, which is the permanent resident program, can speed up and, uh, and uh, at least uh, um, you know, catch up in part. Uh, I would say, though, that uh, that per se will uh, partly go, go part of the way, but if we really want to address the issue, we should uh, introduce some new um, policies in terms of immigration. For instance, economic-driven type of visa uh, for workers who would work in this type of sector, hospitality, construction, uh, healthcare, uh, uh, elderly care, which go well beyond the existing visa, which now we only have this temporary seasonal H2B for seasonal worker and H2B to a uh, for agricultural worker. Also, the high-skilled visa worker uh, visas H-1B that uh, you, uh, that has been the only one which has admitted a significant number uh, is in huge demand and always incredibly constrained. So we could expand that. That will require, though, some legislative action, and uh, I don't see that happen. I think most of all, we need to talk about immigration reform in this framework, the way I see that the economy right now could absorb them, the economy now would need it. The benefit will be on jobs, on other jobs for American, on price level and on growth. The debated list should be affected by this situation. What will happen in the medium to long run? So. First of all, I think that some damage has been done, and that's going to be hard to recover. Uh, these couple of millions of immigrants that didn't come, many of them uh, are, um, you know, doctor, uh, highly educated uh, college students. They have gone somewhere else. Other countries, these are people who are mobile. They can go to Canada, and many of them did uh, because of the immigration restriction or less. They can go to some countries in Europe. The, luckily for the U.S., the U.K. and also Australia during COVID had their own big trouble in admitting immigrants. And so uh, there were not very many places, but these people can go elsewhere and they will never come in the U.S. So their contribution to innovation, to science, to teaching, to technology is in part uh, lost. And this is large part of the growth of the economic growth of the U.S. Um, the other thing that will happen in the medium to long run is that these issues of shortages are not going to go away immediately. The economy has changed. The people are reallocating. But most importantly, one thing which for sure will happen is that we have this huge, massive baby boomer generation that will retire, that will continue to retire in the next 10 years. So the labor force in the U.S. will continue to shrink. The projection before COVID where that immigrant would have offset the shrinkage of the labor force due to retirement. Retirement, but if immigrants don't come or come less uh, because of that, that um, will not happen. So in the long run, we definitely uh, may lose some of the productivity growth. We may continue to have uh, these uh, shortages. And I honestly see uh, tackling immigration policies as uh, one of the key issues to address this. I will stop here for the initial remarks. Uh, and then if there are oh. questions, I'm happy to take them. 
Wonderful. That that was very clear explanation. Thank you so much, Dr. Perry. I, I have a question. And, you know, the argument we always hear is that, great, immigration is down. Americans can occupy these jobs. Um, and, you know, employers should raise salaries if they want Americans to occupy these jobs. So to a certain extent, that's, that makes sense economically, but there is there are limits to this. Can you explain a little bit? Uh, yes, of course. So um, this will happen in part. So one of the mechanisms of adjustment when there is a shortage is that way is their wages go up. As long as these wages are not translated too much into prices, this will mean more real wages. If they are translated in prices, they will not help uh, uh, workers a lot. But uh, it will happen to an extent. But there are some type of jobs in which if you think how much the wages should go up before Americans really will do this job, a young, educated American will take Take this job. Um, probably some of the job will rather disappear. I'm thinking Slow about for bit. sure. Uh, sorry, you're right. Uh, I'm thinking for sure about jobs as, uh, uh, you know, care of the elderly, as uh, as, uh, agricultural job, as some tough construction jobs. Of course, these are jobs that pay a you know, a, a wage, an hourly wage, which is not incredibly high, but you cannot think that the wage can go up by 50%. Company will find other ways. They will take technology and replace it. So some of this job maybe will replace by technology. And in many cases, just people will not demand this. So think of assistance of the elderly. How many families have to do it at home because there is not an affordable opportunity of doing? Yeah, if uh, we uh, make it more costly and uh, if wages there go up too much, uh, the consequence will be that even fewer people will be able to afford and this will be job done by the family which are already overstrained. So some of this uh, wage increase will happen, but in some sector, the shortages will persist just because the demographic of the United States, a young, more educated American direct themselves to other type of job on one end. And then let me say another thing that people, uh, that, that is important. The part of immigration, which is on the other hand, highly skilled, highly educated, uh, that really contributes to the productivity, to innovation, to the science. And this means growth in the economic value added of the US. That's how the US add, and this means also more job in other type of sectors. So. Uh, when you keep the economy compressed because you don't have enough workers, as I said, you generate these bottlenecks in some parts and these have negative spillover in other parts of the economy, maybe some wages will go up a little bit, but if these type of skills are not there or take a long time or Americans don't reallocate, this will come at the cost of a slower economy of less growth of a much more cumbersome reallocation. This is the Alvin Galloway Show on KRDP, and we'll be back. This is Althea Long, and you're listening to the Alvin Galloway Show. Stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up. The Alvin Galloway Show Sundays for conversation, music, and culture. And tune in to the Althea Long Show. It's a music mind walk every Sunday at noon to 2 p.m. One way listeners like you can support KRDP is by becoming one of our sustaining donors. Your financial gift supports the diverse programming you hear on KRDP. It also provides opportunities for youth 
interns, and members of the Valley community to learn radio broadcasting and for coverage of local arts, culture, and politics. And don't forget, your financial contribution is tax-deductible. For more information or to sign up to become a KRDP sustaining donor, call 602-254-6636 or visit our website. Listen, the number 2, krdp.com, and click on the Donate button on the top menu. We thank you for your generous support of KRDP. And without your support... Uh, the Alvin Galloway Show would not be on. And we look forward to you to continue to help us as we try to help the community.
And that was Grant Green. Maybe tomorrow. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. Okay, great, wonderful. Uh, Henrietta Burroughs has a question. Professor Perry, many commentators on the right blame the uh, worker shortage on the fact that the U.S. government gave subsidies, subsidies during COVID and said if people are getting paid, they don't have to work. So what would you say about that? And also, what about the low growth rates within the country? What about encouraging more women to have children? Oh, yeah. So um, about the first, uh, uh, by now, most of those uh, uh, of those uh, uh, transfer have expired. So this could have been uh, a reason to think that maybe the recovery was a little slower in terms of going back to work uh, 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 because people didn't want in 20, late 2020, 2021. But by, by now, uh, most of those uh, uh, you know, unemployment benefits and transfer has gone, have gone away. And still, uh, you are seeing this uh, uh, kind of excess or very large uh, number of unfilled jobs. I think um, the real, um, this big reallocation or the big resignation and the big retirement, those are real things that have happened and are in large part uh, um, responsible for this. And it will take a while before new American worker come in. An easier way will be to admit more workers who are willing from outside. But if immigration doesn't happen, uh, we won't do it. Demographics. Yeah, the US demographics interestingly, is a little bit better than the European demographic and the Asian, Japan, Korea demographic exactly because of immigrants. Because immigrants not only are more bodies, but they have more kids also on average. So um, that's a double whammy that you get from the immigrants on the demographic side. Um, encouraging Americans to have more um, uh, kids. Uh, trying to affect the fertility of people has turned out to be one of the most complex and complicated things <laughs> in the world. There are so many factors. Very few governments that give a little premium have managed to have people because people have a lot of cost. They, they decide based on, you know, women in the labor force and all. So I would say that admitting more immigrants would be a safer way if people would to have a little bit more fertility and a little bit more people. But uh, fertility uh, avoiding the fertility to go to law would be an important goal also for the U.S., for, for American citizens. Thank you. Thank you. And th there are studies that talk about how the availability of domestic workers, which for the most part are immigrant, help fertility. True. That's another, so another effect because <laughs> childcare is easier, is more affordable, so you can have a little right. more kids if there are more. Yeah, that's the third uh, uh, channel. Julie Collins, uh, who is a perfusionist, and she can explain what that is worked in the COVID floor of her hospital for two years and saw firsthand the impact of the pandemic on nurses and the critical shortage of nursing professionals that is sometimes crippling medical care in the United States. She wrote a piece in the Chicago Sun-Times entitled Immigration is Key to Easing the Nursing Shortage. I read it and I invited her and she said yes. Thank you for being with us, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say that I am by no means an expert in immigration, but I do have, I think, more exposure than most um, average Americans in the country. Both of my parents were immigrants. My dad came on a boat through Ellis Island um, from Austria, and my mom came on a plane and flew into Chicago on a family-sponsored visa. 
I've also hired H-1B status um, faculty members to help teach in my department. And I've also had students that were DACA students and saw firsthand how much trouble they have and how difficult and challenging it is for them to go to school. So as, um, as she has said, I have been a perfusionist for roughly 15 years and a perfusionist primary role is to run the heart-lung machine during open heart surgery. And a secondary piece of machinery that we run is an ECMO device which a lot of COVID patients were put on to try to give them a last ditch effort to save their lives. Uh, that being said, during the pandemic, I was on the COVID floor working per diem, helping to cover shifts. And I saw how burnt out nurses were becoming, taking patients in COVID units and caring for them, many of them dying, some even being angry at the nurses because they said that COVID didn't exist and they, they were dying from something else. And as COVID began slowing down, nurses sought early retirement, some of them changed professions from being burnt out, and some even died of COVID. So this left us with fewer nurses to fill the open positions in our units. Now that the COVID floors have been essentially shut down and there's only a handful of patients on COVID ECMO, I've been sitting ECMO in the normal units in the MICU and CCU, and the nurses in these hospitals are working short-staffed. They're being asked to pick up extra shifts they have to care for more patients than it's safe. There used to be one-on-one -on -one patient care and some even two nurses to one patient. And now oftentimes the nurses are caring for multiple patients where they should be caring for one. And this is not allowing them to care for the patients as they should be. And it's increasing their chances of creating errors and not providing the care that they want to provide and causing emotional distress. Due to all these open positions, there's sign-on bonuses at hospitals and nurses are moving from job to job for the best pay or to stay until the sign-on bonus period has ended. And that being said, they takes a few months to train a nurse. So after you've trained them, now you only have a shortened period of time before they could potentially go to another hospital um, to have a new sign-on bonus and start somewhere that might have a better work-life balance for them. The amount of open positions are increasing and the level of burnout is why we need to look for qualified immigrant nurses to fill these open positions. There's roughly 194,000 open positions for nurses in the United States right now. Nursing is also considered a Schedule A profession. So that means that filling these positions with immigrants should not take away from jobs of US nurses. There's not enough US nurses to fill these positions and immigrants can help fill those roles. To note, it's not the first time in US history that nurses from other countries have helped us fill these roles. In the 1980s and 1990s, when hospitals were understaffed due to the AIDS epidemic, immigrant nurses played a vital role in alleviating the shortages then as well. US hospitals could draw nurses here by advertising the wages being offered, supplementing moving costs and visa fees, offering housing assistance, and even a relocation advisor. But in order for this to be effective, the H-1B approval process needs to be more timely and effective. Immigrant visas for close families, such as a spouse, a parent, or a child are unlimited, but family-sponsored preference visas, such as those for extended family, are limited to 226,000 annually, and the H-1Bs are limited to 140,000 annually. I had experience with the H-1B process when hiring one of my faculty members from Canada, and we filed the original H-1B paperwork and then I filed the renewal process this year for another three years for the H-1B visa process. But at six years, I can't renew anymore and he has to file for a green card. So we started the process to file for a green card for him and his home of origin is India. And I was told that the process for him to get a green card would be eight to 10 years. 
So we then looked into an E-1B visa for him. And the legal team here told me that I would have a 20 to 30% chance of being able to hire him and keep him through that visa process. So I've been learning a lot in the past couple of years about the process to actually use the H-1B to hire people to fill positions that were vacant for me as well. So during the pandemic, not all of the family-sponsored preference visas were filled and the remaining were rolled over into the H-1B visas for this year. And I think one of the biggest ways that we can help alleviate the job shortages in nursing and in other healthcare professions is to keep the number of H-1Bs elevated for the next couple of years until this shortage and the great resignation has slowed down. There are three bills that were introduced by the House of Representatives to support immigration and healthcare. There was the Immigrants in Nursing and Elevate Allied Health Act that would create a grant program to cover licensing certification, training and education costs, the second one is an International Medical Graduate Assistant Act that will allow immigrants to work under supervision with their home country's license while getting U.S. license and also create residency opportunities for them. And the last is the Professionals Access to Healthcare Force Immigration Act that would provide current immigrants with foreign licensure and training assistance in working towards their U.S. licensure. The great nursing shortage is here and the U.S. needs to look at creative solutions to fill the positions. Immigrant nurses are a clear answer to helping alleviate this issue. And it's time to encourage representatives to vote yes to help make it more timely and effective to have immigrant nurses fill these positions. You know, just I've seen firsthand these nurses struggling for, you know, two years now. And with the COVID floor, I just couldn't imagine, you know, I saw a limited um, amount of exposure, you know, turning pe people off life support, watching them die, watching families watch over iPads, you know, their loved ones die. And I just can't imagine because I was only doing those shifts, you know, a couple times a week, but the nurses that were with those patients, you know, week after week, I can't imagine that any of them were still there because I can't imagine not being exhausted and burnt out, you know, seeing that. And now, you know, going to hospitals and seeing how tired and exhausted the nurses are and how frustrated that they feel like their voices aren't being heard there's no reason to fault them for wanting to go from hospital to hospital to try to find one that provides them a good work-life balance or at least something they can be feel, feel good about doing their job at. Um, so I just, I feel like this is such a great solution. And if a hospital system were to fast track or come up with a system so that they could keep bringing in nurses, they wouldn't have problems filling their open positions. So I just see this having such potential to solve such a huge issue in the United States right now. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Julie, for those heartfelt statements. I know you've lived this personally, and it's got to be hard. Um, there's a question from Henrietta, and I'm going to read it. Um, she says, during the 80s, the U.S. government encouraged the training of nurses from the Philippines. Is this program still in place? Do you know? I don't, but I do know that a lot of hospitals do have Filipino nurses and have used the H-1B process to have them, you know, come in and be able to work. So I'm not sure if there's that process still in place, but I do know a lot of hospitals that have Filipino nurses working there. If I may chime in. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Ju Ju uh, so the, 
Right. The Philippines, actually. So there is a program in the Philippines. The Philippine government is actually uh, Filipinos are nurses, not only in the United States, all over the world. There is uh, in the Gulf countries in Europe. Uh, they are almost specialized internationally in uh, assistance for healthcare reason and nursing. And the uh, Philippine government has a continued training program in which they encourage uh, the U.S. Uh, so. I think that uh, uh, Julie's right, the nurses will deserve a, almost a special program given the stress they are under. But if we were able just to make you know, the visa, the H-1B program broader and more inclusive uh, for all the type of jobs, uh, somebody asked what are the jobs on which we need, where there are shortages. Healthcare is massively, as personal services in healthcare is massive, but also uh, you know, uh, hospitality services has huge shortages also uh, uh, other. So, uh, maybe kind of on top of the specific program, also think about more general program, that would be great. But uh, uh, Julie's right, they all will require a legislative intervention, a vote of uh, the House, uh, and uh, that's going to be tricky. This is the Alvin Galloway Show on KRDP. This announcement on KRDP is brought to you by the Public Information Committee of Alcoholics Anonymous providing a 12-step program to those recovering from alcoholism. More information at 480-834-9033 or aamesaaz.org. That number again is 480-834-9033 or online at aamesaaz.org. This is Tom Colson, a full moon hacksaw, and you're listening to The Alvin Galloway Show. Stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up. The Alvin Galloway Show, Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. For conversation, music, and culture. Full moon hacksaw, jazz and blues, on Radio Phoenix Indie, Sunday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. And on KRDP-FM, Sunday through Friday. The family essentially is a community of everybody doing a different part, everybody being different, everybody, you know? And in a household, you learn about authority, right? You learn about order, you learn about selflessness, you learn about organization, you learn about competition, and that's what a family gives you.
Alpha Mist. And the song is Keep On. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and we return to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. And to talk about how tricky that's going to be, we're going to bring in our third speaker, and that's Gregory Chan from the American Immigration Lawyers Association, who will speak about the major issues with the legal immigration system and the lack of political appetite on the Hill to solve this issue, which, by the way, has been changing from bad to worse over the last couple of decades, and particularly after the last administration and during COVID. Greg, welcome. Thank you so much, Pilar. Uh, so uh, it's a wonderful, it's a pleasure to be here, especially with such experts like uh, Giovanni and, and Julie on the call. Uh, and their detail really sets the stage for kind of the broader picture here of uh, what reforms need to happen in Washington, which controls much of immigration or really all of national immigration policy. A quick background uh, on the American Immigration Lawyers Association. So I do the congressional relations, the government relations for the association. We are a 16,000 member uh, immigration bar association. Uh, we have members across the country and several international chapters as well. Uh, that pretty much means that in whatever field of immigration might be, employers seeking uh, workers, such as Julie was describing, hospitals perhaps trying to get uh, nurses to be employed with them, uh, so in the business field or families trying to bring in their family members, people seeking asylum, people who are at the border, uh, we have members that are representing people across the spectrum. Uh, and that's where much of our expertise or really all of our expertise derives. Uh, if any of you as reporters ever need case examples of what's happening, uh, feel free to reach out to me or to our communications department. We can typically help you identify people who are affected uh, by policies nationally or by practices of what the government is doing now in immigration. Uh, so the topics that I wanted to cover uh, are about two or three uh, based on what Pilar had shared. Uh, first is to describe what's happening on the ground uh, with the system currently and particularly to focus it on what's happening with uh, some of the challenges in the system uh, for people that are going through the immigration system uh, with perhaps a focus on the employment issues in this context. Uh, the other thing that I'll focus on is uh, what is happening with the uh, politics of immigration and the chances legislatively of getting something done uh, here in Washington, which, as Pilar already kind of teed up, uh, is not a particularly optimistic uh, glass uh, half full to look through. Uh, so those are the, the main topics that we'll address. Uh, the first component to look at, and this speaks really to uh, some of the data that both uh, Giovanni and Julie was talking about in terms of her experience, uh, is that we have seen in the past six or seven years, tremendous delays in the immigration processes across the country, both in the courts and also uh, through the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, uh, which processes most of the applications and petitions in the employment base, the family base, also some of the humanitarian applications. Uh, we have seen delays essentially across the board in almost every category. Uh, what that means is that if you are seeking an H-1B uh, visa, as uh, we we're talking about before, or other forms of permanent uh, employment-based visas that could convert later on into a green card, uh, typically we saw um, really during the uh, previous administration, the Trump administration, those processing times at USCIS uh, often increasing uh, by as much as twice or sometimes three times as long. So if something might take two to three months, we were seeing it might take 
three to six months uh, to process, let's say, your family member to come here if you're petitioning for um, a spouse or um, a child to be able to come over. Uh, similarly, in the employment categories, a business uh, might be stuck waiting that much longer. And if you think about the urgency with which Julie was describing, just the medical field, uh, but look at it across the board for lots of different uh, foreign workers that might be needed, uh, it might take businesses that much longer to see their approval come through. And businesses can't wait to be operational. Uh, this was particularly acute uh, during the pandemic, but it didn't start during the pandemic. Um, I'll talk a little bit later about some of the reasons for those delays. The complementary aspect of this is what's happening in the immigration court system. Uh, at the time uh, that President Obama left office, uh, there were about 500,000, that's ha about half a million immigration cases that were uh, in the court's queue, uh, the, what we often refer to as a backlog of cases. The more cases in the queue, the longer it takes for your case to be heard. Uh, during the four years of the Trump administration, at the time that President Biden then came into office, we had 1.3 to 1.4 million cases in the queue. And as of today, we have about 1.6 million cases that are waiting to be heard. What does that mean? What does that large volume actually translate to for the person that's waiting for their case? Typically, it takes four to six years now for somebody that is applying for asylum, for their court date to come up. Uh, for any other kind of proceeding, unless you are in physical custody of the Immigration Customs Enforcement, um, unless you're in custody, your case is typically going to take several years before you even get that final hearing. Uh, why is that a bad thing? Well, that means that somebody's evidence might grow stale. You might not be able to get a witness to uh, provide the information that they need, a declaration. Conditions might change that make it harder for you to make your claim. Uh, so that is just not an efficient system. And from purely the perspective of law enforcement, uh, the law enforcement system cannot operate effectively if they can't get hearings in their cases. Uh, this is actually one reason why, from the perspective of uh, many of the restrictionist immigration uh, right, more the more conservative right wing perspective, uh, they are so upset and frustrated about the system because it takes so long for a decision to get made. Uh, the irony, of course. Uh, and I'll go here now to the reasons for some of these delays. The irony is that uh, it was largely under the Trump administration that the systems went sideways. Uh, there were lots of uh, tools that were put into place uh, many years ago for courts to be able to operate efficiently, uh, judges to have control of their dockets, to continue cases if it's not ready to be heard, uh, to put it off calendar, uh, to terminate a case if it's not appropriate because the other agency, USCIS, is actually processing an asylum application for that person or a family application for that person. The court shouldn't be wasting time with it. But in fact, the Trump administration took many of these policies away and powers away from judges and said, we don't care. We just want these cases to be heard by the judges. And the judges are scratching their heads thinking, well, you don't really want me to spend 30 minutes on that case or all of those cases um, and waste my time if I can't make a decision in that case, do you? Well, the answer was yes, you're still going to waste your time and do that. What that means is that the backlog escalated to almost three times during the four years of the Trump administration. And it's now still taking time for the new administration to figure out how to improve the systems. Uh, so that is just one example of where delays happen. If I go back to USCIS and look at some of the reasons for delays there, uh, we I'll point to two relatively quickly. One is just uh, the number of additional procedures that the Trump administration implemented under the auspices that these would detect fraud. 
things like requiring an interview in somebody's case who was getting an extension of their employment-based visa. Typically, an officer has the authority to say, well, you're just extending this after three years. Nothing seems to have happened in your case. Um, unless there's a, a red flag, I'm not going to take the time to interview you, which will take double or triple the amount of time it might take usually to review the case. Uh, and I'm going to waive that interview. Well, under the Trump administration, they said, uh-uh, you have to interview every employment-based extension case. Well, what does that do for efficiency? It makes it drop significantly. And that is one of the reasons why we have seen those case processing delays increase so dramatically in the past five years. The other major example that I'll give is so functionally bankrupting USCIS and not managing the system well. In 2020 uh, to 2021, uh, that period, USCIS almost uh, went bankrupt. That had all been built up in the preceding years uh, simply because they weren't processing their fees properly uh, and because they weren't managing the, the system well. So you can blame the system for not working, uh, but what that means is that the economy, businesses that are relying upon those uh, foreign workers to come in, families that need that stability to be able to have their people participate in education system, in the economy, are all going to be much greater um, at risk. Uh, so that is uh, a quick snapshot of what the impact in the field is. I will focus here for a moment on uh, the delays that have happened in the work permit granting area, just because that is so relevant to this particular discussion. Uh, particularly troubling is that the agency's processing of work permits, which we call EADs, employment authorization documents, uh, has declined just as other forms of uh, pr processes and benefits have also declined. Uh, data from the early part of fiscal year 2022 from USCIS uh, shows that the processing times for most of these applications um, have greatly increased. So median processing for EADs based on a pending asylum application rose, uh, here's the number, 318%. Um, so that's a dramatic increase, and that's from fiscal year 17 uh, to almost the beginning of 2022. Many other applications uh, have also seen those increases, and across the board, we're seeing that employment authorization documents typically are taking more than six to seven months to process. Um, now, that is well beyond the 180-day deadline that is set for these EADs to be granted. Uh, the impact of this should be obvious, but it impacts business and stability and also the recovery during the pandemic. Some quick next steps that need to happen in just this area, just so you're aware of it. Uh, one is that uh, there used to be a deadline, various deadlines for when employment documents need to be granted, these permits. Uh, that was taken down several years ago, that should be re-implemented. Uh, that would just put clear deadlines for when these must be granted. Uh, if the agency won't do it, then Congress could step in and re require that. Another one would be for the agency uh, to expand the amount of time that a work permit can be extended for. So the person doesn't have to keep reapplying. Every time USCIS has to look at an application, another delay. So just grant it for two years or granted for 180 days, uh, sorry, for three, 365 days rather than 180 days. Uh, those would be some straightforward steps operationally that could make it much more efficient. Uh, quickly now, just on the politics of immigration and why we are seeing such intractability in Congress. I'll give a very specific example of a bill that was just passed uh, that would have a great deal of fanfare. Uh, this is the Inflation Reduction Act, formerly known as the Build Back 
Better Act that was Biden's signature bill uh, to do across the board COVID pandemic relief, uh, economic recovery, um, and also climate change reduction. Uh, it, it also included in its initial phase all last year, um, a large part to assist in this recovery element, immigration reform. Uh, that package back in 2021 included uh, legalization of people that were undocumented, uh, a component to ensure that people who are essential workers during the pandemic, including in the medical field, but lots of other fields, uh, could uh, also get their status legalized if they were, let's say, working in agriculture. That's considered essential. Lots of other fields. Um, also, visa reforms for employment-based and family-based fields. Uh, Julie referenced before that a number of visas had been lost and not processed because of inefficiencies in the system. One thing that we call recapture is to allow the agency to provide the, and process those visas that have been lost in past years. All of those lost visas accrue to be uh, tens of thousands of visas, which could be used now. Those are just a couple of the steps that could be done. But what happened just a few weeks ago in early August, the Inflation Reduction Act doesn't have and didn't have anything included on immigration. Now, why is that? Why is that, especially when there's widespread polls showing that Americans still want to see immigration reform done at the level of 65 to 70 percent, even in purple swing battleground states and congressional districts? Those numbers continue to be very high for the support of immigration reform. Well, the obvious reason is that we have such polarization, particularly in Congress itself. Uh, the voting population across the country doesn't necessarily show that, but unfortunately, because of gerrymandering, because of the way elections have gone and the Republican Party has largely been captured now by a very restrictionist immigration viewpoint that President Trump very much represents, we have lost the level of interest that used to be there just a decade ago, or maybe 15 years ago, there were many more Republicans willing to partner in immigration, but that just hasn't been the case now. And in fact, because of it, President Biden was only able to uh, even entertain this back in 2021, the idea of passing his BBB Act as a Democratic-only bill, because he knew that he wouldn't be able to get Republicans to partner with him. Uh, in the end, what happened in August didn't even include immigration because it became too difficult. So this divided immigration world that we live in means that uh, it's far more difficult to get anything passed. And what does it mean moving forward as we go towards elections in November? Uh, well, the important thing is that we are not likely to see a major immigration reform bill entertained uh, in the next, uh, certainly not in the next two months, but even in 2023, uh, the forecasting suggests that Republicans may capture one of the chambers. Uh, if that happens, there will be even less willingness to roll up sleeves and work hard on areas that you see broad support in the American public among businesses, labor unions, uh, different organizations that agree and policymakers agree that immigration reform should get done. But it just that agreement is no longer there in Congress. I'll stop there and have to take questions. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Um, and from your presentation, we can see that that saying that immigration law is more complicated than tax law uh, is true. And as someone who covered immigration for almost 30 years, I can tell you it is. This is not a new situation, but it has gotten worse over the years, if that's possible. Um, 
there, there was a proposition on the chat by Khalil uh, Abdullah. Um, I, I don't know, Khalil, if you want to talk about it or if you want me to say it. But um, anyway, you were talking about in the past, there have been uh, suggestions that we should have a Department of Immigration. I mean, we used to have an Immigration and Naturalization Service. And after 9-11, they created this behemoth, this enormous department called the Department of Homeland Security and immigration and customs enforcement and citizenship and everything was put in there. And it seems to me that that it's the immigration is just seen as a homeland security issue, as a safety issue, and not as a positive for the country and not as an economic issue. Greg, do you think um, is it, it would be better if there is a Department of Immigration focused on immigrant integration and all that? Is that a pipe dream? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give a couple of reflections on this uh, very thoughtful question. Thank you, Khalil. Uh, I guess at the at the direct level, I would say uh, I certainly think that would be a good idea, uh, but perhaps not for the reasons that maybe uh, Pilar was suggesting might it, that it might be beneficial. Uh, at an operational level, the challenge of having many of the immigration functions largely placed within the Department of Homeland Security, although not exclusively, Department of Labor, uh, Department of Justice, Department of Labor and Department of State all have different uh, components of immigration that they handle, uh, but most of it is within Homeland Security. This, as I'm sure you're aware, was all a product of post 9-11, uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And at that time, there was discussion of having a separate bureau uh, that would continue to be focused on immigration. Uh, one of the deep concerns that I have is that immigration is increasingly inextricably tied to national security and to uh, homeland security issues because of this. And that means the concerns about what immigration provides as a benefit to the country, um, as an economic issue, as uh, Giovanni is an expert in. Um, also, the service component of immigration has often been subsumed within the idea that it's related to border national security issues. Uh, so I think that bias and the fact that it is really trapped within a large, large, much larger agency uh, is, is a problem here. Hmm. Now, whether separating it, which Ayla would support uh, for that reason and others, including some of the ones that you're talking about, whether it would actually result in the immigration debate becoming less polarized and less focused on national security, I'm not sure the agency ship would actually do that because uh, for anybody who's been reading the newspaper, you're aware that uh, that has much more to do with how messaging and the media is now talking about immigration uh, and how bifurcated our media is um, on the issue. Um. Araceli, you want to ask your the second part of your question? I think uh, Dr. Perry addressed the uh, sectors that need more workers, uh, but not the second part. You want to ask it? Yes. Um, I don't know if you can. Um, can you hear me? Yes. It's uh, yes. I have a doubt. Is is this shortage of workers has in, uh, helped to increase the salaries? In, in the in the country because I have seen that some owner rest, uh, of restaurants, for example, they have been offering higher salaries in order to recruit uh, waiters or, or other personnel in their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, right? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, so that's a good point, Araceli. So uh, it, it is, it is. Uh, in some of the sectors where there has been the strongest shortages, uh, 
um, which were also sectors where the salaries had been stagnant for a long time. There is this problem in the US of very stagnant salary of uh, around the median salary. So the job of the middle class has not had real salary growth for a long time. But there are two qualifications to that. One is that while there have been some increase in these uh, salaries, um, at least in the short run, the increase in inflation has be, have been comparable to the increase in salary. So that uh, a family uh, who relies on, uh, so maybe there have been an increase in salary in one year in the order of five, six percent, which are not insignificant. But as you know, the inflation rate is at eight percent right now. So the question is, has there been a real uh, a real benefit uh, that we have to wait a little bit and see if these salary increases are more persistent. But the second is that, you know, these salary increases are going to be a little progressive and they are going to be so uh, going to be helping at the margin. But some of these shortages are so massive that you is going to be incredibly hard to attract such a very large large number of American just by increasing the hourly salary, say, by 50 cents or by $1 into this sector, because people uh, in the US are thinking, I want to do more remote, I want to retire. And so uh, immigrant would be a, a much uh, easier uh, group to come in. So a little bit of benefit, for sure, for some sector. But we we'll have to see how much is left after inflation. And I think in the big picture, you also need, you can have both. You can have a, a little bit more more higher salary and more immigrant uh, as a way of filling in uh, these uh, shortages. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Henrietta, do you want to ask this question that you posted in the chat? Yes. Thanks again, Pilar. Um, you mentioned, uh, Greg, about the immigration policy being very much tied up with national security. But isn't the immigration policy also tied up with the fears that uh, are held around people of color coming into the country that would radically change the demographics and racial makeup of the country? And therefore, uh, immigration policies would be tailored to reduce immigrants from certain countries. For example, Trump had an expletive about uh, immigration from countries of color and wanting to put more emphasis on immigration from countries of, of Scandinavian countries. So how much is color tied up with the US's immigration policy? Uh, we're certainly prompting one of the most challenging uh, issues in the field of immigration. And I don't think it's any secret, uh, as you are pointing out, that immigration policy, not just in the past decade or two decades, but really uh, since its inception in the 1800s, has often been animated uh, by nationalist, xenophobic, uh, and racial animus toward the particular national group or ethnic group or or racial, you know, if it's a color issue uh, of the entity that's coming in or the group that's coming in. This happened for Chinese with the Chinese Exclusion Acts. It happened for uh, immigrants from different regions of Europe. And we could do a whole history lesson on that. Uh, certainly in the past 20 years, and I would dare say in the past uh, seven or eight years under the Trump administration, uh, the level of nationalist and xenophobic rhetoric has greatly uh, amplified and I think that amplification um, has 
made it much more polarized in the way the media talks about this, uh, in the way that uh, at least one political party, the Republican political party, tends to talk about it. I would not label that across the board, uh, but there are some of the most vocal members of the Republican Party uh, that are now in primaries that are using this kind of scapegoating rhetoric uh, that then does tend to impact how Republicans will take positions uh, legislatively where they are unwilling to partner on proposals that they used to partner on. So just to give a quick uh, description here, back in uh, 2006, 7, uh, 2013, even going back to the years of uh, pre-9-11, when Vicente Fox and George uh, W. Bush partnered together and almost passed a major immigration reform bill, uh, both Republicans and Democrats were equally interested in immigration. I think George Bush could have been the president to make the, la the real last bill happen, uh, but 9-11 happened. Uh, after that, there were several Republican leaders that continued to partner on this. The last real effort happened in 2013. Since then, what we've seen is the Republican Party, rather than leaning into the diversity of what's happening demographically, an opportunity really to, uh, in, for lack of a better term, capture the immigrant vote, let's say the Latino vote, which often has had uh, leanings uh, toward on conservative social issues. Same with some of the Asian uh, populations from different nationalities. Uh, instead, the Republican Party has tacked more and more towards a very restrictionist view. And I think that is has led to the polarization and to some of the these policies being changed most dramatically demonstrated under President Trump. Uh, so I think there's no question that has happened, uh, but it doesn't mean that American voters an American populace buys into that perspective. And so I think what we have is a silent majority, um, as I was describing in some of the recent polling information. And I can share a link with from recent polling done by Heart Associates uh, in battleground states. Those were, that's the 65%, 70% data I was showing before, showing that American voters in battleground districts and states continue to support at very high levels uh, immigration reform, including legalization of people who are unauthorized. Uh, so that's that's a polarization of our political leadership and what they are saying in Congress, not necessarily a polarization across the board of American voters. That is very true. Thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. We only have three minutes left, so I'm going to go around um, just thanking our panelists and asking them for last thoughts on whatever part of this they want. Giovanni. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think these are very healthy and important conversation. I agree with uh, our feeling here that talking more about immigration, the economy, immigration, and the role in society is very important rather than just uh, uh, focusing on, uh, uh, you know, uh, immigration and security and safety and loss. So uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity. Oh, thank you for being with us. Julie, last thoughts? Yes, thank you for having me. But as I'm listening to Giovanni and to Greg and the questions, I think the thing that keeps coming to my mind is um, to get the legislation and the immigration reform that we're looking for, I think we have to start with just changing the perception. So maybe it's something as simple as putting more positive stories about immigrants in the media, starting with something small and getting that in papers and in places across the country so that we can start to change this negative narrative that certain people in the population seem to be perceiving as the truth. And so if we don't get that out in the media and we start with something small, we'll never achieve these larger goals that we're trying to achieve. Agreed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie, for being with us with your busy schedule and talk to you soon. Uh, Greg? Uh, sure. First of all, I'm very happy to be have been here. I guess 
Um, I, I will say a couple of quick comments. One, I see this note about the labor union, labor movement. Uh, yes. The labor union movement has largely grown uh, much due to the role of immigrants and foreign labor as part of their movement. Uh, you, we've seen labor unions, SEIU, AFL-CIO, Unite Here, really come to the table to negotiate with businesses. And there have been many real opportunities where agreements have been reached across the board. Agriculture most recently has been heavily debated, and there are accords on this. Uh, back in 2013 and 2006 and 7, the same thing. But those are not winning the messaging war here that is controlling Congress and the politics. Uh, and that's what is so unfortunate, because economically, I think there are there's just no question where the advantage is here for our country. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that point because I think it is, is so important to emphasize. Um, and I will just say, I, I guess in final mark, you know, the opportunity for change is there. Uh, and I think the Republican Party is making a mistake by not seizing the mantle, which is really sits there in front of them to lead in this field uh, because they're refusing to do it. And we all understand the politics of why now. Uh, but I think that is uh, going to marginalize the party itself in the long run. Uh, and it's too bad because it's not good for that party, nor is it good for the country. And it's a good finish. Thank you so much. Have a good Labor Day weekend next weekend. And remember, we won't have a briefing on Friday, but we'll be back on the night. Thank you, everyone. Giovanni, Julie, Greg. So thankful. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. We thank Ethnic Media Services that continues to bring us pertinent information that affects our lives every day. This is the Alvin Galloway Show. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and also to check out our podcast. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. And as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. We'll see you next week. Be blessed.
Immigration Man, Graham Nash, David Crosby. Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small. We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.